Today our plan is to uh, review Saul and David for a few minutes and then take up the life and reign of Solomon, who was the third king in the United Kingdom. We have three periods in what is called a monarchy, United Kingdom, Divided Kingdom, Single Kingdom. United Kingdom, we have three men, Saul, David, and Solomon, and that runs from 1050 B.C. to 930 B.C. And that's based on the assumption that each one of these kings reigned 40 years. Now, we know that Solomon reigned 40 years. The Bible tells us that. We know that David reigned 40 years. The Bible tells us that. We believe Saul reigned for 40 years, but Saul and David may have overlapped a few years, and so instead of 1050 B.C., this might be 1043 B.C. But for convenience sake, we say that each one of them reigned 40 years, runs from 1050 B.C. to uh, 930 B.C. In 930 B.C., Solomon died, and the kingdom was divided. Now, when we come to David's life, uh, there are four major divisions in David's life. First of all, there's the testings of the king. 1 Samuel 16:31. David is not yet king. Uh, Saul is still the king. And during this period, 1 Kings 16 to 31, which runs about uh, 15 years, runs about 15 years, David is coming to the throne. David is about 15 when this starts, and he's about 30 when he becomes the king, and he rules for 40 years, and he's 70, the Bible tells us, when he dies. So this period of testings runs about 15 years, from about 1025 B.C. to about, uh, uh, about 1025 B.C. to about uh, 1010 B.C. That'd be about 15 years, wouldn't it? During this period, Paul, uh, David is first a shepherd boy. Then secondly, he's at the court playing the liar, L-Y-R-E, for Saul and trying to soothe his emotional state. Then Saul chases him out, and David becomes a fugitive for several years, and Saul attempts to kill him. Saul dies. He commits suicide. Saul dies. Already, <clears throat> David has been anointed many years ago as the next king. So the kingship is taken away from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, and placed in the tribe of Judah. Now, that was predicted, by the way, back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. So if a man had been reading his Old Testament, he'd know that the kingship was going to come from the tribe of Judah. But the kingship was taken away from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul, and given to the tribe of Judah, and that's David. So secondly, we have the triumphs of the king. Uh, that's uh, David coming to the throne. For the first seven and a half years, he ruled only over the southern kingdom, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. That's first, uh, Second Samuel chapters 1 to 5. That period is about seven and one-half years. And then <clears throat> after Ishbosheth died, <clears throat> and after the general Ishbosheth died, <clears throat> who was named Abner, and there was no competition, then David the tribes, the other ten tribes came to David and said, we want you to be king over all of us, but we'd like you to move the capital up a little further north. So David brought the capital from down in Hebron up to Jerusalem, 
and established the capital of Israel at Jerusalem, and it became known as the city of David, or Zion. And what is the great capital of the Jew today, as far as the Orthodox Jew is concerned? Jerusalem. Where does that go back to? Back to David. David said, anybody that's able to go up and take it away from the Jebusite, I'll give him my daughter, and he'll become my general. And Joab did it. So he becomes king of all the 12 tribes. Now follows a period of consolidation. Now follows a period in which uh, uh, David extends the kingdom. And so we got five events which I've already covered last time under that. If you don't recall them, then get Mr. Matthews to get you the tape. They're all found, the five events that fall in here. Uh, he gets, uh, first of all, the new capital, Jerusalem. First of all, he becomes king. Secondly, he gets a new capital. Third and first, second, first, second Samuel chapter 6, third, he brings the ark up to Jerusalem. Fourth, in second Samuel chapter 7, he asks to build a temple. God says no, but God makes a covenant with him, promises to David a house forever dynasty, and Jesus is the last in that dynasty. Secondly, passes, promises him a kingdom forever, that's territory, and he defines the limits from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. And third, he promises him a throne forever. A throne is the seat of government. Promises three things. Dynasty forever. Jesus is the last in that dynasty. Promises him a territory. That territory's limits are defined. And that's not heaven. That's down on earth, Palestine. From the river Egypt all the way to the river Euphrates. Third, he promises to him a throne forever. That's the seat of authority, like Washington or Moscow or Paris or whatever else it may be. A, a, uh, a headquarters, a seat of authority, and he promises them forever. Thousand years later, when the angel came to Mary, the angel promised Jesus exactly those same things. And may I put in a Shakespearean aside here, that premillennialism, and I happen to be a premillennialist, is built precisely on these four great covenants that God made with the nation of Israel and especially with Abraham and David. The Abrahamic covenant, which promised a seed forever, that is the Jew, and a land forever, that's the land of Palestine. Genesis 17, 7 and 8. Second, the Palestinian covenant in which God reconfirmed the land promises. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Third, the Davidic covenant which God promised to the descendants of David a uh, house forever, a dynasty forever, like the house of Stuart in the British uh, Empire, a house forever, and a territory, kingdom forever, and a throne, a seat of government forever. And that could not have been forfeited by disobedience. And it's not going to be claimed by spiritual Israel. It was reconfirmed to Jesus 1,000 years later in Luke chapter 1, 31 to 35. That's the Davidic covenant. 
And then, last of all, since God doesn't give anybody anything without a right heart attitude, God promises in the new covenant, the fourth covenant, Jeremiah 31, that God will give to them a heart by which they will receive the Messiah and enjoy those promises. Those promises are unconditional. The possession of those promises are unconditional. The enjoyment of them waits the new heart. One day, God will give them the new heart. He's already given them the promises. One day, he's going to give them the hand of faith, the new heart, to embrace those promises, and they're going to receive those and enjoy them back in the land. What we see today in the land of Israel is not the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. We need to be careful in the debate that's going on between Israel and the Arabs to make sure that we understand that the promises of God to the nation of Israel are promises that will be enjoyed only when they embrace the Messiah and come to him in faith, or else we'll get in trouble. We'll say, how do we determine? Well, we determine by ethical principles now. See? So God has promised to them possession unconditionally. The enjoyment, it depends upon a right attitude God and acceptance of the Messiah, and God has promised, guaranteed to them that in the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, when he'll give them a new heart. Now, that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 8 to 10, uh, we have the record of the expansion of the kingdom. And uh, David is the one that really expanded the kingdom. When he took it over from small, it was only a small kingdom. When he finished, it was a large kingdom. And that's what he handed over to, uh, uh, over to, over to Saul. Here's the kingdom. Uh, here's the conquest. Um, here's the kingdom uh, right here, this outline right here. Uh, and if I get up here and make it a little clearer, this was the territory which they enjoyed uh, after Joshua's conquest and under the judges. This is the territory which they enjoyed under Saul. This is the expansion of the territory under David. David conquered north conquered the Philistines on the coast, conquered the uh, Ammonites and the Edomites and the Moabites on the east and south, and conquered the Syrians and even some across from the river Euphrates that they brought in as mercenaries and extended his kingdom all the way from the border of Egypt all the way to the river Euphrates. Now, those are the boundaries that God promised to Abraham, Genesis chapter 15. Then he handed that all over to Solomon. Solomon became the heir of that, and the income and the wealth from taxes and conscripted labor and from trade was enormous. The queen of Sheba gave him what amounts today. Uh, when she came up visited him, she came up uh, probably to strike some trade agreements. The queen of Sheba gave uh, Solomon alone about three and one-half million dollars. And the revenues of Solomon are ju were just simply astounding. And, but, of course, that led. What Solomon did was to centralize the government and the centralization, the bureaucratization of Solomon's kingdom led to conscription of manpower, heavy taxes, the loss of personal liberty, 
and eventually to the division of the kingdom. See the debate that goes on today between the federal government and states' rights is not a new debate. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying that seriously. That goes way back to the debate uh, to the days of Solomon. And it's always been a strong debate whenever you have a strong ruler. And Solomon was that. Uh, he centralized the government. And here's the extension of that kingdom under David, and that kingdom is what he gave to Solomon. Then we have the... <clears throat> Then we have the troubles of the king, 2 Samuel chapter 11 verses, uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 to chapter 21. And you know the problems. We've gone over those. Those are on the outline. We'll not go over them again. But you recall that first Solomon, first Solomon fell into sin. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. Then to cover his tracks, he had... Uriah the Hittite murdered. He thought he got away, but he didn't escape, number one, his conscience, didn't escape, number two, his children. His boys knew about that. Number three, he didn't escape some of the higher echelon officers. They knew it, and he couldn't keep them under control because of that. So from that time on, we find David's in trouble. First, his sin with, uh, with Bathsheba, then secondly, one of his sons commits incest with a half-sister. Because he committed incest with his half-sister, the real brother of that half-sister, his name was Absalom, bided his time, then one day murdered Amnon, the half-brother. Then later on, the next tragedy is that Absalom... Absalom, the son of the king, the son who probably David loved more than any other son, uh, revolted against David and chased David out of Jerusalem. And David had to flee into the wilderness. And from about 2 Samuel chapter 14 to chapter 19, we have the story of David's flight out in the wilderness, fleeing from his son, who would have probably killed him. And then finally you recall Joab under his army, they got way up in Gilead, which is trans, northern Transjordan. They joined in battle up there under three generals, and they conquered Absalom's forces. And Absalom's head was caught in a tree. And Joab came along and said to the soldier, kill him. The soldier said, no, you're, David said, don't touch my son. So Joab said, well, if you won't do it, I will. And he put three darts into Absalom then sent the news to David that Absalom was dead. One of the saddest stories in all the Bible is the story of David going up to a room privately and crying like a baby, weeping, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, would to God I had died for thee. And that was not so much a prayer of mercy, it was a prayer of justice, because David knew that although Ab Joab would put the dart and Absalom's heart was really David himself by his sensuous life that had set the page for Absalom. Then the last part, we have the twilight of David's life, the writing of the Psalms and the uh, final charge in, uh, to Saul and the appointment of the next king and we come to the death of David and that's found over in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Now we'll touch on that. We'll look at that 
one may come to the life of Saul. What can we say about David by way of conclusion? Well, the whole lot of things we could say. We could take up the rest of the period, and I don't want to do that, talking about the greatness of Saul, uh, David. One of the greatnesses of David lies the fact that David unified the empire. He took the 12 tribes and unified them, made it a monarchy, and established the kingdom on a solid basis. David is responsible for that. Made Jerusalem the capital. Made the nation of Israel a great nation of its day. So that uh, later on, Israel always looks back to David as the great king. In, in Jewish history, who stands out as the great king? Not Saul. Not Solomon. David. Because David was one that unified the kingdom, 12 tribes, and expanded its territory and set up an organization to control it and established Jerusalem as the capital. And David is marked for that. He's also known as the sweet singer of Israel, wrote many of the Psalms. About 70 of the Psalms are directly ascribed to David, and many of them represent experiences that we read in the book of Samuels and the book of Chronicles. And... Uh, then, when we come to the New Testament, David is looked upon as a type of justification by faith, and he is, of course, regarded as the ancestor to the Messiah. Let me suggest, by way of conclusion, and I'm doing this quickly, that when we come to the character of David, we find that there are two major failings and many strong points. Two major failings. One was and they're common today, two major failures. The first one was that David failed to discipline his passion. David failed to discipline his passion. So he fell into adultery. Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 27, I beat my body and bring it under subjection, lest having preached to others, I myself might be disapproved, called out of the race. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul is speaking of the sexual passion. And Paul said because he was single, because he had to walk the streets of Corinth, where on every hand there was temptation, uh, where religious prostitution was common, and a culture was riddled by homosexuality, by adultery and infidelity, Paul said, I have to to discipline the appetite to my body. I beat my body. Bring it under subjection, lest having preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. David, though he conquered great territories, never conquered that passion. And he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and it led to great tragedy in his home. The second failure of David was that he failed to discipline his own son. Now, I'm going to tread on some toes here, see, because we all have this problem. Look over at 1 Kings chapter, 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. First Kings chapter 1. 
Verse 5. At, uh, near the end of David's life, although Solomon uh, uh, was to be the next king, one of the other sons, Adonijah, reared a revolt against uh, David and against Solomon and tried to usurp the empire. Chapter 1, 1 Kings, chapter 1, verse 5. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king, and he prepared chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not displeased Absalom at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? Father never really exercised any discipline over Adonijah. Matter of fact, David exercised very little discipline over any of his sons. He's a great man, and all the, uh, all the men of war admired David. In fact, they loved him deeply. You look at Joab and these other men, they loved David deeply. These men, these soldiers, would have laid down their life for David. They loved him. He was a great leader. He, attracted, he was a man's man, and he attracted men to him, and they would have laid down his life. Some of them, when they found out that David wanted a cup of water, jeopardized their life to go into the enemy camp in order to get some water for David. They loved David. He was a man's man. But like a lot of men's men, he failed to discipline his own children. Whether it was Amnon, whether it was Absalom, or Adonijah, he didn't say to them, he didn't call them in and say, why did you do this? You shouldn't have done this. You were wrong in that. Never called them. He was so occupied with the affairs of the kingdom that he had never time to sit down and talk with his own sons and discipline his own sons, and consequently, consequently, all of his sons, most of his sons, went bad. Amnon committed incense. Absalom revolted against David, sought to kill him, and was murdered. Adonijah reared a revolt against David, and he ended in murder. And all of Many of David, he had 17 sons, and many of them ended their lives in tragedy because David failed to discipline his own sons. Now, that's all we had. That'd be dark, wouldn't it? That'd be dark. David was also a great man. David had a wonderful spirit of forgiveness. He never was marked by the spirit of revenge. He knew that Saul wanted his life, David forgave Saul. Absalom wanted to kill him. David forgave Absalom. And Shimei cursed him. Man wanted to kill Shimei. David said no. He had a wonderful spirit of, uh, of forgiveness. He never carried about revenge in his soul. He was a humble man. He submitted to the discipline of God. When God disciplined David for his sin, David never argued with God. He submitted to God. And the greatest thing about David the greatest thing, I hope you listen carefully, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, men saw David's outer life, his adultery, failure to discipline his son, murder of Uriah, for which there are no excuses. But God saw something else. God saw that David had an intense desire and love for God himself. As the heart pants after the water book, so my soul pants after thee, O oh my God. 
And David was a man after God's own heart. And may I say to you that that's that God, without overlooking our failures, God looks for that. You know, a man may dot all the I's and cross the T's and be exemplary on the outside and have no real passion and love for God. On the other hand, a man like David may make a lot of mistakes and fall along the way, but God sees his heart, and God sees that way down deep, that man wants to please God. He's always submissive to God's chastening, no matter how deep it's hurt. When David engaged in a military census, which he should not have, and God judged him and chastened him for it, David said, I'm going to fall into the hands of God. I deserve it. He never complained against God about his discipline. He said, I deserve it. I'll put my case in the hands of God and let him do whatever seems well to him. And David submitted the chastening hand of God. And you read the Psalms, you read that there's a great heart for God in David. He's a man after God's own heart. And I like what's said about David in Acts chapter 13. I use this occasionally in funeral sermons. That Bible says in Acts 13 that David, after he had served his own generation, fell on his knees. God called David to a certain work, gave him a task. David served his own generation. Despite his faults, David accomplished the work that God gave him to do. When he finished that work, the Bible says, David fell on his knees went to be with the Lord. All right, so much for David. Now we're going to come to Saul. And you've got an outline in front of you on Saul. Is that correct? Solomon, pardon me. Yeah, I wanted to see if you were awake. Solomon. <laughs> you've got an outline on Solomon. Now, I stayed up about an hour working that last night. After doing the lesson, I figured it'd be easier to do it that way than put it on the board. So I uh, uh, drew up this outline on Solomon's life. Solomon's life is given to us in 1 Kings chapter 1 uh, to chapter 11, verse 44, the life of Solomon. And he's the third in the United Kingdom. First Saul, second David, and then third Solomon. And the scripture that covers Solomon's life is 1 Kings 1 to 11, and 2 Chronicles chapter 1 to 9 and three books in the Old Testament. What are those three books? Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Three books written by Solomon. Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, the book of Proverbs. Song of Solomon perhaps written early in his life. Uh, when he was engaged in romance. Uh, the book of Proverbs written possibly uh, in the middle of his life. And the book of Ecclesiastes after he'd gone through all the fire near the end of his life. The book of Ecclesiastes perhaps is written. Solomon reigned for 40 years. Look at 1 Chronicles, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 42. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 42. Let's take our Bibles and look over. We're going to be in 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 1 to 11 is the scripture that covers the life of Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us how long Solomon reigned. 1 Kings 11 verse 42. How long did he reign? The last two verses. 40 years. Now turn over to 1 Kings chapter 3. 
1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7. This tells us the time when he came to the throne. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7. And uh, uh, Solomon says in verse 7, O now, Lord my God, when he came to the throne, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. I am but a little child. Now, how old was David when he said, I am but a little child? Well, nobody knows. Let's say he was about 20. So he came to the throne at 20, and he reigned 40 years, so he would have been about 60 when he died. If by little child he means 30, then he was 70 when he died. If by little child he means 18, then he was 60, uh, 58 when he died. I'd say probably 20 or 25 when he says, I am but a little child. I don't know how to go in or out. Let's say he was about 20 when he said that. If that's so, then he, he lived about 60 years. His great achievements were that he built the temple. That's the outstanding achievement. And he wrote three books. His negative is that he bureaucratized the nation of Israel and he led it into apostasy and idolatry. Now, there's six things that I want to look at carefully. Solomon's appointment to the throne. Secondly, Solomon's establishment on the throne. Third, the organization and splendor of Solomon's kingdom. Fourth, the building of the temple. Fifth, the splendor of Solomon's kingdom. And finally, Solomon's apostasy and death. Now, let's just briefly survey. That's, uh, that takes up about 60 to 70 years. Number one, Solomon's appointment to the throne. You see that in the first column? Did everybody see that? All right, Solomon's appointment to the throne. Now, you've got it on the right side. I see a couple of you looking on the blank side of the sheet. See? <laughs> All right, that's on the front side now. Number one, Solomon's appointment to the throne. First Kings chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 10. Three things take place. This latter part of David's life, Solomon is not yet king. Although God has told Saul, uh, David that Solomon is going to be king. So he got three things. First of all, the decline of David, his last five, six, seven years. David is an old man. He's weak. He knows that his life is now not long. Second thing we have there is a plot of Adonijah and Joab. Now, Adonijah is another son of David. Joab is David's general. So along with uh, Adonijah, who was a half-brother of Solomon and the son of David, and Joab as the military leader, and one of the priests whose name is Abiathar. Abiathar, these three men, Adonijah and Joab, these three men, Adonijah, Abiathar, and Joab, plot against Solomon to take the throne and make uh, Adonijah the king. Nathan, the prophet, gets wind of it. So Nathan gets Bathsheba, and they go into David, and they say, who's an old man now, and they say to David, this is happening. God has said that Solomon is to be the king. You ought to head this off by announcing publicly that Solomon be the next king. So David took that step and announced publicly that David would be the next king. And then after doing that, 1 Kings chapter 2, David dies. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2, 
Verse 1, Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. And that charge is found in the first nine verses. Chapter 2, verse 10, So David slept with his father, and was buried in the city of David. The days that David reigned over Israel, how long? Forty years. Seven years he reigned over the two tribes in Hebron, and 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 12, Then sat Solomon upon the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. Now the next thing we have, the second thing, is Solomon's establishment on the throne. That's chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 28. Now the three problems that Solomon's going to face, three problems. In, 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 oh, it's one thing to be appointed, it's another thing to be established on the throne, and Solomon's going to face three problems in coming to the throne. Number one, there's no precedent. No precedent. Who was the first king? Saul. He was directly chosen. Who was the second king? David. But David was from another tribe, and God directly selected him. So there was no precedent yet that the son was to follow the father, and the grandson was to follow that father, and that son was to follow that father. There was no precedent yet set up, and that made it difficult for Solomon. The second thing, David, for some reason, had not made publicly clear who was to be a successor. Although God had indicated in 2 Samuel 7 to David that Solomon would be a successor, David had not yet publicly announced it. Why? We don't know. And the third thing is that there were other sons that aspired to the kingship. David had 17 sons. Now, some of them are already dead. Amnon's dead. Absalom's dead. Others were probably dead, but some of them are still alive. And they aspired to the throne. And as long as their daddy, David, had not yet publicly announced his successor, they felt that they had a right to aspire to the throne and perhaps get it. And Adonijah took the leadership in doing that. So those are the problems he faced. Now, in doing that, <clears throat> coming to the throne, Solomon does three things. And that establishes him securely on the throne. Number one, number one, he eliminates his adversaries. There are three adversaries, and he eliminates Adonijah, Joab, and a man by the name of Shimei. And he eliminates all three. He has all three of them executed. Look at chapter 2, verse 34. Chapter 2, verse 34. The first one that he executes is Adonijah. He, used, he asked the same general to execute him. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in his stead over his host. Zadok, uh, verse 34, So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and fell upon Adonijah and slew him, and he was buried in his own house. That's Adonijah, the usurper. The second one is Joab. Look at verse 46. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, who went out and fell upon Joab, that he died. So that's the second adversary. And then look at <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 40. Uh, well, that's, um, that's Joab. This one is, is Shemaiah, who's executed. Anyway, all three of his adversaries are executed. Now, someone says, why, Solomon's rather ruthless here. No, no. 
They all were enemies of David, and they all were enemies of Solomon. Solomon, when he came to the throne, <clears throat> forgave all three of the men. They ought to have been executed then. But David forgave them. Uh, Solomon forgave them. But he said to them, I'm going to forgive you, but don't get out of line. Because if I find out that you're trying to overthrow the kingdom, then I'm going to put you to death. So Adonijah was quiet for a while. Then he went to Bathsheba and said to Bathsheba, Ask your son Solomon to give me his wife, Abishai. And when Adonijah heard that, uh, he executed Adonijah. When Solomon heard that, he had Adonijah executed because that was the way you would humble a man by taking his wife. That's what Absalom, you remember, did last week with David's wife. Publicly humiliated the wives of David. That's how you would humiliate a man, by taking his wife. So he executed Adonijah. Then he executed Joab. And then he executed Shimei. By doing so, he established himself on the throne. Then the second thing he did <coughs> was that he married an Egyptian <coughs> princess. By doing that, why he uh, 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 formed an alliance with Egypt. Now, I hope you'll all listen carefully. When we come over to 1 Kings chapter 11, we find out that, David, that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 700 wives and 300 concubines. And when we first read that, we, we happen to tend to think to ourselves, either that man was a very sensual man, or else he was a glut, glutton for punishment. <laughs> 700 wives and 300 concubines. But as a matter of fact, in those days, the way kings would establish political alliances was to marry the daughter of a foreign king. By marrying that daughter of that foreign king, you would cement a, an alliance between you and that foreign nation because the king of that foreign nation would hesitate to move the king against the kingdom whose king was his own son-in-law. Now Solomon was a master of this. He made alliances. The greatest power of its day was Egypt. So the first thing Yeba did, 1 Kings chapter 3, was marry the daughter of Pharaoh. By marrying the daughter of Pharaoh, he made a friend, became friends with the king, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Cemented that relationship. Another king that was very powerful was the king of Tyre, a city, one of the Sidonian cities, Tyre and Sidon. And so David married the daughter of the king of Tyre, who supplied all the lumber for the temple anybody tell me king of tyre who supplied all the technicians to shape that lumber beautifully for the temple later on for a david's house hiram king of tyre how did david have such a close relationship? he had married his daughter i mean how did solomon have such a close relationship he had married his daughter so solomon expanded and strengthened his empire by marrying the daughters of surrounding kings. Now you say, well, how could there be 700 kings? Well, what we need to remember is the king wasn't necessarily a king over a vast empire. A lot of these were simply what we call today 
strong, tyrannical mayors. They were mayors over one city, but they held absolute power over that city, so they were called a king. David wanted, uh, for military reasons, or for trade alliances, or for other reasons, he wanted to have uh, good relationships with that mayor. So he would marry the daughter of that mayor, take her as wife, take care of her, and by doing so, uh, he would establish good relationships with those kings. He probably didn't see one-third of the wives that he married, except for the first time, he probably never saw many of the wives that he married. But he used this as a procedure to establish strong political alliances with all the surrounding kings and territories. Now, what happened, of course, is that when he married these foreign women, which God forbade, he committed two sins. One is polygamy. The second was marrying a pagan. When he married these foreign women, they brought their own idols into the kingdom, and eventually Solomon ends up worshiping foreign gods, 1 Kings chapter 11. But that's the second way that he established his throne, by marrying uh, here an Egyptian princess, forming an alliance. The third way was that he asked for wisdom, and God, God gave him wisdom, and he judged wisely. Number three, the organization and splendor of Solomon's kingdom, chapter 4, verses 1 to 28. This describes, uh, this chapter 4 describes the organization and the wealth of Solomon's empire. Organization, he organized it well. You can read the story. He had 10, 11 princes, which we would call a presidential cabinet, like the Secretary of the Interior, the Secretary of the Navy. So he had a cabinet, and those were 11 princes. Then he had 12 commissioners. He divided Northern Kingdom and Transjordan into 12 divisions, and he assessed a tax upon each one of these 12, one month at a time. Solomon had a tremendous household, 700 wives with all their servants. And all of the military police he had and all of the servants that took care of Solomon. And it, just to supply the food ran to several thousands of dollars every day. Now, don't let your wife hear about that. You want an increase in budget. But the expense of running just his own home was a phenomenal expense. So what he did, he divided 12 districts up in the north and Transjordan and said to each one of the 12, you supply all the food necessary for my home for one month. And he put a man over each one of the 12, and that man was responsible to collect it. And he, and he secured himself that way. And then the second thing is described here as a tremendous wealth that uh, Solomon had. And uh, then the third thing is the fame of Solomon, which was tremendous. Then we come next to the uh, building of the temple, the building of the temple. And uh, uh, the great activity uh, for which Solomon is famous is the building of the temple. Now that's given to us in chapters 5, 6, Seven and eight. Chapter five tells us about the preparation, the materials, and the manpower. 
Then chapter 6 and 7 tells us about the actual building. It was twice the size of the tabernacle. The uh, dimensions of it were 60 cubits by 20 cubits wide by 30 cubits high. Now, a cubit is about 18 inches. So if it were 60 cubits long, that would mean that it was 90 feet long. If it were 20 cubits wide, that meant it was 30 feet wide. If it were uh, 30 cubits high, that meant it was 40 feet, 45 feet high. Estimates run anywhere from 9 to $11 million that that one building cost. It was tremendously ornate. It took seven years. Solomon employed the best of technicians. Then he went ahead and brought the ark to the temple and he dedicated the temple. And that's given to us in chapter 8. Then we have the fifth thing, the splendor of Solomon's kingdom. Uh, that's the fifth thing, the splendor of Solomon's kingdom. God warns him against wealth and warns him against these foreign wise, but he doesn't heed it. And the splendor of the kingdom is given to us in chapter 9, verses 10 to 28, and you'll need to read that to see what's there. Then he has the visit of the queen of Sheba, chapter 10, 1 to 13. Now we all know about that. Sheba is what um, uh, is... Um, uh, uh, you look at the Arabian Peninsula today and you go way down the south of the Arabian Peninsula and there's a little land down there and that's comparable to what is called Sheba. It's one of the oil exporting lands today and it was ruled by a queen and she was a very smart and sagacious woman. Solomon had already established trade relationships. Solomon had built a seaport down at Ezin Geber which archaeology has uncovered. Down there, there was a lot of copper available, and he established one of the greatest copper smelting plants in the Near East. And he shipped out copper all over the Mediterranean and probably as far as India. O-P-H-I-R is probably a reference to some city in India. And he shipped this copper everywhere, and then, of course, got other things in return for that. And one of the places he established a trade relations was down in this country. So the Queen of Sheba came up there to rearrange, uh, to make some, uh, get some understanding about trade relationships. Just what the United States is trying to do with Japan is what the Queen of Sheba was trying to do with Solomon. She was suffering from an adverse trade relationship. So she came up to Solomon. And to get him on her side, she brought 120 talents of gold which is comparable to about $3,600,000, gave it to him as a gift. But it was a gift to get a better trade relationship established with Solomon. Whether that was established or not, uh, we don't know. Then we got number four under point five, Solomon's revenues. I want to look at that just a minute. See number five, the splendor of Solomon's kingdom? What's number four down at the bottom? Solomon's what? All right, Solomon's revenue. Solomon's revenue. They were tremendous. Chapter 10. Let's look at chapter 10. Chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. Solomon's revenue. They were tremendous. 
Look at chapter 10, verse 23. Give you some idea of Solomon's revenue. Verse 23, chapter 10 says that King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. Is that what your Bible says? The wealthiest king of his day. And his wealth was tremendous. Where did he get it? Well, he got it from four sources. He got it first from taxation. He taxed the people heavily. And after he died, after he died, the Israelites came to Rehoboam and said, your father's taxes were too heavy. Reduce the taxes. Reduce the taxes. Of course, Rehoboam wouldn't do it. And that led to the split of the empire. But he got a lot of it by taxation. Second thing he got, uh, from which he got revenue, was labor conscription. Now, David had conscripted foreign people, but Solomon introduced the idea of conscripting his own labor. One project alone, he conscripted 70,000 Israelites to work on the temple and to bring that timber that the king of Tyre floated down. The king of Tyre cut it from Lebanon, floated it on down to a seaport, and Solomon conscripted these men to go down to that seaport. They worked one month off two months. Worked one month off two months, 70,000 men, and they were involved in bringing all these big logs, timber, up from the seaport up to Jerusalem. And Solomon, just as God warned First Samuel chapter 8, Solomon uh, had forced labor gangs and conscripted the men of Israel to work. That was the second. Third source was the foreign tribute, and he laid countries under tribute and required them to send vast amounts of money every year. And the fourth source of his wealth was trade. He engaged in trade all over the Mediterranean, probably as far as Spain on the west, probably as far as India on the east. You know, we tend to think that Solomon and David and these men were all isolated down a little land in Palestine. They were kind of down at Senatobia, Mississippi, see, or down at uh, Forest City, Arkansas, and they never got out of the city, and they lived in caves. That tends to be our assumption. As a matter of fact, these men had somewhat comparable, they didn't have the kind of commodes we had today, but they had plumbing. Archaeology has indicated that. Magnificent homes. They knew about building the homes so that it would be cool by the winds. They built it with the center court. And the wealthy of some, like Solomon, built tremendous, tremendous homes. Had tremendous source of income. But like some of the Central American countries, that meant that many of the people lived at a poverty or less than poverty level. When Solomon died, because of excessive taxes and because of a tremendous bureaucracy, the tribes revolted against the successor of Solomon. Then we have number six, Solomon's apostasy and death, and that's given to us in chapter 11. His sins, idolatry, and apostasy. The cause of it were those marriages he made with pagan kings, and the consequences of that were his adversaries. God raised up adversaries to him. That's all in chapter 11. He had the unrest of the people, 
and eventually the revolt and division of the kingdom after Solomon died. We have Solomon's death, 1 Kings chapter 11. Let's read it. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 41. The rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? The time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was how long? Solomon slept with his father, who was buried in David, in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam reigned, his son reigned in his stead. All right, now by way of conclusion, what can we say about Solomon's reign? Well, uh, Solomon's reign was probably the greatest period of material prosperity in all the history of Israel, yet it was marked internally by the seeds of decay. Solomon's administration was marked by three things. This is found in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Now, don't turn there. We don't have time. But Solomon's administration was marked by three things. They're tremendous, yet they sowed decay. First, by political alliances. Solomon was a master of this. You know, the English have had a lot longer history than the Americans at political alliances. They know how to wheel and deal. Well, Solomon, in a short time, learned how to wheel and to deal and to make political alliances, and he found out one of the best ways was by intermarriage with the king's daughters. And that led, of course, to many marriages. Second thing that marked Solomon's administration was building ostentation. Built the temple, which is proper. Seven years. Built his own home, 13 years. Then he built fortifications, built the wall, whole lot of building activity, which, of course, took millions and millions and millions of dollars and involved forced conscripted labor. Then the third thing that marked it was religious compromise. He eventually got involved in worshiping the gods of his, of his uh, wives. Two great major contributions of Solomon. What do you think they would be? What would be the two major contributions of Solomon? Number one's the temple. What's the second one? Writing. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those are the two major contributions of Solomon. When we come to an evaluation of him, politically he was a despot marked by absolutism. He enslaved people, just as God predicted. Economically, he gave wealth and luxury to Israel. Economically, I hope you listen. Economically, Solomon gave wealth and luxury to Israel. A lot of people lived high on the hog under Israel. In fact, the Bible tells us that. He centralized his government, got tribute and trade taxes, and, and uh, the Bible tells us, and I can't pick out the verse right now, that every man sat under his own fig tree, and they lived luxuriously. Many people lived luxuriously. And he gave to the country wealth and luxury, but he gave wealth and luxury to the country at the price of two things. Number one, now does this sound modern? Number one, 
excessive taxes. Number two, the loss of personal liberty. The centralization of the government, the tremendous bureaucracy that he established led to the loss of personal liberty. And his government was marked by excessive taxes, by the loss of personal liberty. And when Solomon died and Rehoboam came on the throne, the ten northern tribes, as we shall see next week, came to Rehoboam and said, Listen, your father was too hard on us. Taxes too heavy. Taxes too heavy. Conscription of men too heavy. Lighten up. And Rehoboam listened to the old man, said, Lighten up. To the young man, be tougher. And Rehoboam went out and said to the ten tribes, My little finger is going to be heavier than my daddy's thigh. Do you think my daddy taxed you? Wait till you get your next tax bill. See what it's like, see? That's what he said. And the ten northern tribes revolted, as we shall see next week, and it led to a split. And morally he was weak, and spiritually his heart was not right with God. And the lessons that we learn is that a man may have outward prosperity, yet inner spiritual what? A nation, a home, a man. That you can't violate God's law regarding intermarriage and escape. And we learn from Solomon the tragedy of a wasted influence. I hope you'll go back today and read 1 Kings chapter 1 to 11. Now, next week, what are we going to start? Some goodness. Uh, thank thee for these, the lives of these men. They're given to us as 1 Corinthians 10 as examples to us, as warnings to us. So when we read the life of David and we find out that he didn't discipline his appetites and he didn't discipline his children, his sons, he didn't rebuke them, didn't say no to them, help us, O God, that we may learn from the mistakes of these men. At the same time, help us not to be critical of them and to learn also from their successes and to have the heart for thee that David had for thee, the love for thy word, the submissiveness that David had to thy chastening hand, to thy judgment. And uh, we love this man, David. What a great man of God he was. In fact, thou didst say, of David, that he was a man after thine own heart. What a compliment to David. We pray that we shall be those kind of, that's precisely that kind of man, a man after God's own heart, a man that loves God, loves him with all his heart and soul, despite his mistakes, seeks to honor and to please God and to obey God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.